Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. So, here we are at episode 23 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better, and I am excited to share the third in a series of episodes where I'll talk with my Buddhist teachers, the ones that helped shape my life for the better. In this episode, I am talking with Greg Creech, one of the leading authorities on Japanese psychology in North America, and we talk about Japanese psychology, Buddhism, and how the two work together to help you through challenges, get stuff done, and deepen the practice of acceptance and gratitude. Greg has been a virtual teacher of mine for more than 10 years through his books, distance learning programs, and his to-do institutes, to-do, Toto Institute's journal, 30,000 Days. That's a little joke. Um, it's actually the Toto Institute, as we will you will hear in the episode interview, um, but many people do call it to-do, and so for today, it just came out to-do. <laughs> So, I won't delay getting right to the episode, but first a note about the quality of my audio in this episode, uh, in, in the actual interview portion. I have, must have been so excited to talk with Greg, I forgot to switch my microphone input to my podcast mic and talk directly through the webcam mic. So, what you hear is that speakerphone sound on my end. But Greg, being the ultimate professional, sounds great. Another quick note, please stick around to hear to the end of the podcast, and you'll hear a special offer from Greg and the Toto Institute for a coupon code for the listeners of Everyday Buddhism, offering a discount on his upcoming distance learning class based on his best-selling book, Taking Action, Lessons from Japanese Psychology. So without any other delay, here is the interview. I am excited to share the third in a series of episodes where I will talk with the Buddhist teachers that have, you know, helped shape my life for the better. Um, in the first Talking With My Teachers episode, I had a conversation with my sensei, Reverend Koyo Kabose, of the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism. And then um, about a month later in January, uh, I talked with Frank Howard, who along with his wife Gretchen, of the White Lotus Buddhist Center, uh, Rochester's Tibetan Buddhist Temple. Um, they were my first in-person mentors in Buddhism and enabled my initial refuge way back, way back. Um, so they were my second talking with my teachers episode. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Greg Creech, who uh, is one of the leading authorities on Japanese psychology in North America. I just informed Greg that he was one of my teachers. He didn't know that, but uh, um, Greg has been a virtual teacher to me for more than 10 years. I've never met him personally, um, but his books and distance learning programs and the Toto Institute's journal have had a significant impact on me and, and, and my spiritual and psychological development uh, for the better. So um, I was first introduced to Greg and his work during my training with the Bright Dawn Lay Ministry Program in 2007, 2008, um, and his book, Nikon, Gratitude 
grace, and the Japanese art of self-reflection served as the basis for one of our learning modules in that program. Um, it was a month-long, we, we made it a month-long sort of Nikon retreat where we shared our insights with class members. And we were, uh, we had to keep a journal and, and do a typical Nikon retreat, although it's probably not the way Greg would do it. Um, since that time, Greg's books and virtual classes have been an anchor for me um, during all sorts of challenging life situations and just for using it as daily reflections um, and, and checking myself. Plus, as a coach, uh, the cool thing is, is I've shared what I've learned and many practices that I have used of, of Greg's um, with my clients. So it's sort of uh, passing it on. And I've discovered that typically, almost consistently, my clients remark that the practices of Japanese psychology have been more effective in working with the persistent issues that they might have had than other sort of common psychological methods that I've used with clients like CBT or, or cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. So there's a bonus to this Japanese psychology. I'm gonna give you just a little background about Greg. He's an author and editor whose work has been featured on public radio um, in, in multiple publications, The Sun Magazine, Tricycle, Self, Utney Reader, Counseling Today, and on and on and on. Uh, I'll put a full bio on my website uh, so you can see more about him. Um, his book, Nikon, Gratitude, Grace, and the Japanese Art of Self-Reflection, won a Spirituality and Health Magazine Award for Best Books of 2010 and has been translated into five languages. In another of his books, The Art of Taking Action, um, Lessons from Japanese Psychology, is a current Amazon bestseller. Greg and his wife, Linda, are the founders of the Toto Institute, a nonprofit center in Vermont that uses Japanese psychology as an alternative to traditional Western approaches. They have introduced this sort of psychology or this approach, particularly Nikon therapy, Morita therapy, and Kaizen to thousands of people through his workshops, speaking engagements, and online courses. This work is a blend of the psychological, the spiritual, and the practical uh, based on uh, core values such as purpose, gratitude, mindfulness, compassion, and constructive action, which you find embedded in Japanese psychology. Um, he, I said before, he edits a journal called 30,000 Days, a journal for purposeful living. And all of these things I will post on my website so you can find out more about him, sign up for his classes, order his books, and I encourage you to do so. So after that, hello, Greg, and thank you for joining me on this podcast. Hello, Wendy. It's a pleasure to be with you. I hope everyone checks out the Toto Institute, you know, it's a gold mine of resources to help make your days better, which is what this podcast is all about. Um, so, Greg, in preparing for the podcast, I needed to do a bit of research to remember um, what Toto meant. I knew it was Japanese and not to do, I, that was the reference, but yet I'm sure a lot of people think of it as to do, as in a task list. But maybe you can share some of how the Toto Institute came to be, you know, the meaning of. Toto? 
um, and how you came to personally, how you came to Japanese psychology, or maybe it was the other way around, like most of us, how Japanese psychology came to you. Well, in terms of the name, um, it's an interesting situation because in Vermont, we're mostly referred to as the To Do Institute. <laughs> and since Marita therapy is often considered to be uh, a psychology of action, um, it, it's kind of a nice fit with the idea of to do. Uh, but the Japanese term, which is really the, the uh, true meaning of the word todo, is Eastern way. So to is uh, Eastern, like the Tokyo, to in Tokyo, and uh, the do is, is the way, like in uh, kudo or kendo. So, uh, so todo means Eastern way. Uh, and then the word todo also is a Spanish word, for those of you who have some Spanish, and, and it means all or everything. So actually the, uh, the Todo Institute actually has meanings in those three different languages. That is, yeah, that I, I actually, I kept, when I was researching, I kept looking it up and, and it kept coming up with the Spanish. And I knew at some point that I had seen, uh, seen the, uh, the Japanese reference. So thank you for clearing that up. Um, so yeah, Eastern Way. Eastern Way is different than Western Way, right? Uh, generally. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that we do is uh, we provide uh, a model of psychology and mental health and, and approaches to life based on those models that really are a contrast to traditional Western psychology, which nearly all of which is rooted in a kind of Judeo-Christian European tradition. So for people who resonate with um, Buddhism or Zen or, or uh, um, other kinds of practices from the East like yoga or Chinese medicine, um, they often find that the underlying values and principles of Japanese psychology are much more consistent with that uh, uh, paradigm of, of life. And uh, the way that I originally kind of discovered this, and it's probably more as you were saying, it kind of discovered me, was uh, when I was in my uh, late 20s and I was involved in Buddhist study at that time and I was uh, very interested in psychology, but I found that every time I would kind of take a look at Western psychology, clinical psychology, uh, I found it much too self-centered, to be honest with you, given the teachings that I was learning in Buddhism. I was learning Buddhist teachings, like, as you know, is like compassion and oneness and uh, um, service. And yet I was looking at psychology from best as being how to get the love you want and looking out for number one. Um, so I couldn't really, really connect with a lot of the um, focus of Western psychology being what I consider to be much too self-focused. Uh, and I stumbled on a book called The Japanese Therapies by named David Reynolds, uh, which introduced a collection of different approaches to psychotherapy in Japan. Uh, and one of those was Nikon therapy, another one was Marita therapy. And I immediately realized that this was very much in line with my own Buddhist training in um, Zen and Shin Buddhism. So it seemed like a perfect fit for me. And then uh, from there, that's really kind of, initially I, I pursued this work just on a personal basis. Um, and I really had no intention of 
teaching at the time, uh, becoming a teacher of this work or founding a center. But uh, over time, I felt like this was really my, uh, as they say in, in yoga, this was kind of my dharma, my purpose for uh, uh, being here. So uh, as a result, my wife and I moved to Vermont about 27 years ago, and we um, founded this nonprofit center, the Toto Institute. That, that is fascinating, and it actually hits on something I was going to talk to you about, um, more about the Eastern way um, and how you discovered it and how what, your, what sort of drew you to it was the sort of clash of Western psychology uh, with what you were you know, learning in Buddhism and what, was, what you were uh, trying to become more of in Buddhism, right? With the, with the, with the, with the not looking out for number one. Um, mm -hmm. So, the, I, you know, we read a book uh, in, in actually the Bright Dawn program again um, the, called The Ge Geography of Thought, How Asians and Westerners Think Differently and Why. I don't uh -huh. know if you're familiar with that book. The name of the author is Richard Nisbet. Um, and I'd actually highly recommend the book to any listeners here, but the book had a big impact on me, reinforcing how um, different cultures had distinct cognitive differences and, you know, how I could, too, try to see the world differently um, if the person, place, and time, as uh, Reverend Koyo Kabosi sensei refers to it, as, as if the person, place, or time calls for it, then I could try to change my perspective. And that sort of demonstrated how the emphasis in Eastern thought is uh, interdependence, which is the main tenet, one of the main tenets of Dharma, right? Um, and, and that's a natural sort of aspect of the Japanese mindset or culture where versus independence, which is the sort of the go-to back cultural sort of behavior in the West. Um, is there anything you can add to that? Well, I think I think you described it very accurately, and I think the <clears throat> I think the contrast between Eastern and Western psychology, at least in part, is reflective of that that difference. And so, um, in Japanese psychology, let's for example, in in Nikon, we're specifically looking at how we can how we can discover through self-reflection, that connection, that interdependence that exists between us and other people in our lives, between us and objects, between us and forms of energy. Um, so, uh, so there's a, um, a movement towards connection and, and recognition of interdependence, which is very consistent with Buddhist teachings. Um, and I think in, in the West, on the other hand, uh, in a lot of Western psychology, there's much more an, of an emphasis on individual individuation and kind of uh, becoming yourself. And uh, um, and part of that process, in my opinion, tends to have a self-focus. And I think one of the things that was very surprising to me, but at this point in my life just seems very true, is that it wasn't just that Western psychology had this self-focus in terms of psychotherapy, for example, but that Eastern, the Eastern perspective that comes from Rita Nikon um, isn't just not to be self-focused in that same kind of way, but that self-focused actually equates with suffering. In other words, um, it is self-focused attention that actually leads to greater suffering. 
Um, so you have two very contradictory paradigms uh, between the, this Eastern and Western viewpoint of psychological health. Um, and yet, I would argue that the basic human nature of people in the East and the West, of, of Japanese people, for instance, and American people, is, is really no different. The, the fundamental human nature, uh, for instance, being anxious or fearful about doing new things, um, worrying about our loved ones, that, that at a fundamental level, um, we're, we're no different as Americans than people in Japan. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, exactly. I think there is a cultural bias towards like um, community and making sure everything's okay. But yes, at the, at the in, in level of the individual, we all have the same fears and worries and so mm -hmm. forth. I, what, what you said about that, the turning in towards oneself is the cause of the suffering. And yet, and then definitely in, in Buddhism, that's something we we talk about all the time um but we don't always have approaches like to deal with it like you offer in 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 the approaches that you teach you know i i think like in western mental health it's it's the focus is on that that what what's wrong right um so you you take a lot of time looking at what's wrong talking about what's wrong um, right and all of that actually just um uh strengthens or exasperates the the actual focus on the self really and then causes mm -hmm. more problems right yeah i think that um that it's a much more healthy viewpoint to just you know start from the perspective that we're all crazy <laughs> And uh, um, and so uh, rather than trying to look at pathology, you know, what's wrong with me? Um, why am I the kind of person who gets so nervous if I have to stand up in front of a group and give a talk or make a presentation? Why am I like that, right? And then you can go through hours or, or years of psychotherapy trying to understand why you are the way you are. Um, and even though we think of um, Eastern... Uh, philosophy and Eastern thought as being more mystical in, in a sense, from a psychological standpoint, it's much more practical because it's much more the view the, of um, we will never really know why we are the way we are. If somebody said, well, mm -hmm. you know, why are you like this? If I had to give an honest answer, I would say I'm like this because of every karmic moment in my life from before I was born. You know, okay. every movie I've watched, every book that I've read, everything I've been exposed to, every really, that's why I am the way I am. But to try to pin it on a particular situation is to me impossible. So instead of spending time on that question, it's much more constructive to look at um, what is it that I need to do with my life, right? What's, I, I have a limited amount of time, limited amount of, of days um, uh, on this planet and what do I want to do? What's really important? Why, what am I here to do? Um, and instead of trying to fix my internal experience, if I'm depressed, if I'm anxious, if I'm shy, um, the idea is that I go about doing the things that are important for me to do in my life imperfectly, 
right? right. Um, I go about it. I do it as the best shy person. I make my presentations as the best shy person possible. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, for me personally, I go up on stage and play blues piano, um, you know, as the best uh, uh, anxious Japanese psychology teacher possible. <laughs> um, and, and so there isn't this sense that first we have to fix ourselves and then we can do the things we want to do with our life. It's um, almost reverse, which is by doing the things that we want to do with our life. In many cases, that's what fixes ourselves. Wow. Yeah. It, yeah. That's that's fascinating. Because it is true. It's like, you know, the Western approach is like the figuring out and turning, turning inside and making much to do about that or um, masking it with, 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 with some sort of either talk therapy or, or not, that's not masking, that's focusing on it, but masking it with like drugs and so forth, rather than turning the attention outside and engaging in the world. You know, your, the practices that you teach from Japanese psychology were for me, you know, really just as you're talking about them, I, I hear that totally is one of the missing links in my journey as a practitioner of the Dharma, you know, so people can tell you to practice the Eightfold Path and they can tell you, I mean, you can learn about the philosophy of, you know, impermanence and interdependence, but, you know, how, how, how does that work in your doing your life, right? In, in the things that you do. And this led to major aha moments that enabled less, enabled some lessening or, or breaking of some of the non-productive habits I've had over the years, like uh, uh, procrastination and avoidance. Uh, and that then therefore led to deepening my practice and acceptance or, uh, you know, and, and instead of trying to control situations and people. You know, I'll share, actually, I'll share one big thing I have to embarrass myself here. And then you can talk a little more about it on how, how your approach can fix these things because it sort of, it didn't fix it. I'm still working with it but it's got better. Um, I'll share one of my big problems and that is uh, perfectionism, which I thought was procrastination and maybe it really is procrastination, but I thought in looking at it, I thought it came from perfectionism and maybe I'm looking too hard, but as a writer, and I know you're a writer as well, and in talking with other writers, I think it is a thing that can affect a lot of writers. And it's only been in this past year or so where I've seemed to come to grips with the taming of this a bit. And I heard you say somewhere, either something I read or on a podcast you were on, that you said uh, perfectionism is founded on grandiosity or grandiosity and a grand view of yourself rather than humility or humbleness, which is sort of the approach Buddhism takes. Can you talk a little more about this and then fully expose me to embarrassment? <laughs> well, I think that <clears throat> most people don't really associate perfectionism with grandiosity. Um, but if you think about it, for instance, if, if, uh, if somebody's writing their first novel, um, they've never written a novel before, uh, or if they're going downhill skiing for the first time, or um, if they're going to... Uh, sing on a stage, you know, during a, a, um, an open mic for the first time or do a comedy routine, any of these kinds of things. Um, you're trying something new for the first time. Uh, 
And the view that you should actually do well, not even perfect, but that you should even do well is grandiose because right. what's the basis of thinking that you should do well when you're trying something for the first time? You know, if, if you look at, at life, um, you look at a little child, for instance, you know, walking for the first time, what you see is they get up and they take one step and they fall down. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's great. Right. But it, if they had this view that like, oh, I should be, you know, I've never walked before, but I should be able to just get up and just kind of like, you know, do cartwheels and, and <laughs> fly across the room like Usain Bolt or something like that. It would be absurd to think that, except um, because I think underlying this this view that we should be able to do things well and without mistakes is this underlying high opinion of ourselves. Um, if if we don't have that view of ourselves, if we acknowledge that we really don't know what we're doing and we're trying something for the first time, um, we go into it with a much more lighthearted perspective. We almost expect you know to make mistakes or to fall fall on our face or we're singing to hit hit the wrong note or something like that. Um, and it's much easier to accept those limitations. Now, um, over time, if we keep doing those things, if you continue to uh, write and get feedback, if you continue to sing or play music um, and practice, you're likely to get better. And so if you think about it, um, what, where we get confidence from is by doing that thing over and over again um, to the point where we become better at it, right? That's mm -hmm. where confidence comes from. If, uh, I remember the first time that I drove a manual shift car when I was a <laughs> teenager and and you know you, if you were watching the car it just kept like lurching forward and dying right <laughs> many of us who tried to learn how to drive a stick shift that's that's how you did the first time um but you practiced and i still own a manual shift car uh and i never even think about shifting it's just natural and automatic to me um, but my confidence didn't occur before I learned to drive a stick shift. It, it occurred as a result of driving a, a stick shift over a period of years. Mm -hmm. um, and so we shouldn't expect to have confidence. We should expect to be anxious. We shouldn't expect to do things perfectly or even well when we're just doing them for the first time. Um, and, and as we recognize that, that this comes from this kind of underlying grandiosity, um, we find that if we can just simply accept our limitations and and approach things with more of a sense of humility and even lightheartedness that um, we're much more likely to kind of uh, do things in the world that are exciting and adventurous and new um, than if we hold back because uh, we're worried that we're we're not going to do this well and, and we're going to make a fool of ourselves and people are going to laugh at us but what's wrong with making a fool of yourself and having people laugh at you <laughs> Yeah, and that's so true, you know, and in my personal experience, it's like, um, I have found that my perfection and perfectionism uh, got better, um, you know, and it came from the, the broader acceptance that we learned in, in, Je in Japanese psychology, but it also came from the fact that if I had a lot to do, if I busied myself doing things that I like and really busied up my schedule, um, like in the last two years, I've really gotten busy doing things. And I think it's because I'm aware of my age and I'm trying to do all the things I want to do. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. at, at 66, you figure you don't have a lot of time left. So, so, you know, I, I started doing everything. And when I started doing more things, I worried less about doing them right. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sort of yeah, in it because it, it it takes your mind off of it and because maybe because just you're doing something you want to do like you said you just want to do it um mm-hmm. so yeah there is something to that but i in working with my coaching clients i wanted to address which i think is the like one of the key, the, the most important points of 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 Japanese psychology and and Buddhism in general, I think is that attitude of acceptance. Um, it's not. I don't think it's something that comes naturally to. Maybe it's the Western mind, or you. I, I don't know. You know. You might think it's we're all the same in that way, but I find in working with coaching clients, that is usually one of the biggest problems at underpinning a lot of other problems right um sometimes they just people can't accept things that happen to them sometimes they can't accept being uncomfortable sometimes they can't accept you know they don't accept the very thing that's in front of them and so in in fighting that thing um they create so much suffering for themselves that they don't do like i think you've said before those things that are right in front of them and you told one story somewhere in one of your books about and, and, and I think I might be cementing two things together that don't belong, but you can, you can shake it out, um, is, is that if you had a fire in the house, right, you, would, you, you wouldn't take too much time thinking about what you, you were going to save. You'd probably go right to the room that you wanted to save the most important thing. And then there's the other anecdote that I think you've shared a couple of times. If there's a, a if your sink is, your, your faucet is leaking, you don't worry, oh no, I have to clean it up. Oh gee, I, what a mess. I have to do this. You just do, you respond to the task at hand. And I find most people I work with in my coaching practice, they don't have that skill at all. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think that um, in Marita therapy, I think one of the things that we're pointing to is um, the question of deciding what to do. How do you know what it is that you need to do? And um, for many of us, and this this includes certainly includes me um, when I was in my twenties before I discovered this material, and I'll acknowledge that it it includes still includes me in many moments when I'm not practicing this material very well. But, but uh, many of us decide what it is that we need to do based on our feeling state, right? right. So if, something, if, we're, if we're excited by something, then we can't wait to go out and do it. If, um, if we uh, anticipate a task like doing your taxes is going to be boring or hard or even confusing, then um, we, we often resist actually doing the task and we find ways to get out of it to avoid it and do other things. Um, but it's based on our feeling state, even in relationships. We did a webinar on relationships last night and um, many people go into their relationships, particularly in your, in our younger years. You know, if you, if you feel this romantic attraction to someone, um, you, you feel love towards that person. And so you want to be with them. Um, but then suddenly you meet somebody else six months down the road and you feel an attraction and you think, well, maybe this is the right person for me. I can't, I can't really go against my feelings. And so, so many of us um, uh, spend our lives kind of responding to um, whatever is going on with our feelings. I like the metaphor of thinking of us, our lives as being a play and our feelings are the director of that play. They kind of tell us what to do, where to go, when to speak, when not to speak. 
Um, and the shift that I think is offered by Japanese psychology is really uh, we, we remove our feelings from the position of director. And uh, it's not that we kick them out of the play, it's that they just become one uh, actor or actress in the play. Sometimes they're important, they play an important role in the play, but they're not the person who's directing the play. So who's directing the play now? And um, what Japanese psychology offers as a replacement for that position is your purpose. You know, what actually needs to be done. So when we open up the refrigerator, instead of what do I feel like eating, the, the other alternative question is um, what needs to be eaten, right? Yeah. What needs to be eaten from a standpoint of this, this will spoil tomorrow if I don't eat it or from a standpoint of what, what needs to be eaten because it's healthy, good for my body, good for my diet. Um, and it's a different question. And so we shift the focus away from our feeling state to, um, uh, to essentially the world around us, what needs to be done here. You're walking down the road, there's a piece of trash on the road. It's not do you feel like trash. It's what what needs to be done in this situation, right? What's a good response to the needs of the situation? That's actually the phrase that I use in training. Um, what is an appropriate response to the needs of the situation? Whether it's parenting, picking up trash, uh, diet and exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly it's not about your feeling state. It doesn't mean you're going to feel like doing it. It's about what what actually needs to be done in your life. Um, and what we develop as a skill, this really requires practice, is to coexist with feelings when they're insistent with those things. When um, right now I have to do all these physical therapy exercises because of my knee surgery, they're very painful. Um, I, I never feel like doing them, <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, but based on my purpose, which is to recover from the surgery, I need to do them. And so I have to take that aversion, that feeling of aversion, or not, uh, the feeling of not motivated um, or dislike, I have to take that with me and and carry that right into the physical therapy exercises. As I'm starting to exercise, I'm feeling and, and think I'm thinking I don't really want to do this, and I'm feeling in my body a kind of aversion to doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ability to coexist with that internal state while I do something. Um, behaviorally is really a skill that, that we can develop. And it's the skill that is fundamental to the whole issue of self-discipline. Yeah. And, you know, um, there's, in working with, with people in, in teaching meditation or mindfulness practice, that's the other kind of thing. Do you, this really is talking similarly to like, you know, watching thoughts arise and go, watching thoughts arise and go and not feeling like you have mm-hmm. to act on them. A lot of people, I find when you're first, when mm-hmm. they're first coming to meditation, and I remember this when I first came to meditation, that's like a, that's like an unbelievable concept, right? We, <laughs> we, we, because we, there, there's something in us that I think is like, we, we need to immediately respond to the thought we had do something, act on it, whatever, even if it's, mm-hmm. even if we haven't considered it. I think feelings are exactly like that and can get us into way more trouble than thoughts. And, and I actually remember in my life when mm-hmm. I finally, when I had a time where I thought I'm having this feeling now, but I don't have to do anything about it. Right. I just, I mean, I remember having that conscious thought, <laughs> I don't have to do anything about it, but 
you know, if, if someone isn't trained in meditation, like say you're working with somebody with Morita therapy and they're not trained in meditation, so they've never been exposed to that concept. How is it sort of like a cognitive behavioral therapy approach? How do you, how do you make that shift happen through the practice? Yeah, I think that, that um, depending on what it is that I'm trying to help somebody learn, um, I have to formulate exercises that they can use for practice. Meditation is a great, excellent exercise for being able to watch your thoughts and watch your feelings, and you develop that capacity. Um, uh, when I when I lived in um, many many decades ago, I spent spent a short period of time living as a monk in a Zen temple in Japan, and you know I would sit there during meditation and I would think all kinds of thoughts, including. What am I doing here? I'm just going to get up and leave. This this is really like <laughs> absurd that I'm I'm doing this and sitting here in a temple on a mountain in Japan, um, and I would have that thought and I would continue to meditate. Um, so, but there's other ways I think uh, that we can also learn to coexist with those thoughts. So one of them uh, is the idea, for instance, let's let's look at food that um, you feel a craving, let's say, for a cookie. And you have a cookie in your pantry, right? Um, a nice chocolate chip cookie. You've been thinking about it. And normally you would feel like this kind of desire for something sweet. And you would get up and you'd go get the cookie. And so the exercise I might give somebody is to um, delay the action of getting the cookie for 20 minutes, right? And and simply you could even, they might even ask to make a note um, uh, what are my what were my thoughts at that moment? What were my feelings, right? And then wait for 20 minutes. And after 20 minutes, by the clock, if you still want to get the cookie and that's what you need to do, go ahead and, and get it and eat it. That's okay. But you realize that you don't have to simply react to your thoughts or react to your feelings, that you have the capacity, even if it's just for a few minutes, to actually sit in your chair, read a book, play the piano, watch a movie. Um, even though you feel this craving for a cookie, you actually don't have to act on it. When I ran a Marita group down in the Washington, D.C. area, when I first started this work, I remember one group meeting, um, I actually passed around these really nice chocolates, and I'd give them a, this plate to the first person, and I would say, so look at these chocolates and, and take kind of a little whiff of them, and then tell me what your thought and feeling is, right? And the person might say, well, I'm thinking I would love to eat one of these chocolates and, um, and I'm feeling this kind of um, feeling in my stomach, you know, that, that uh, this kind of um, uh, enzyme kind of desire <laughs> in my stomach for chocolate. And I would say, that's great. Can you please take this plate and pass it on to the next person? So in other words, I'm saying you don't get a chocolate. <laughs> Right, um, right. And then there'd be a point at which someone would say, you know, um, I don't like chocolates that much. And I actually had a big dinner before I got here. I really don't feel like eating chocolate. And I would say, that's fine. Could you please eat one? So whatever the person's feelings and thoughts were, they were asked to essentially behave in the opposite way. And everybody could do it. Everybody had the capacity to do that. So we begin, and this is really psychologically how we can define freedom. Yeah. You know, if we... If we're always um, we're reacting to our thought and feeling state, we have no freedom. Right. But as soon as we see that there's a space 
between our behavior and the thoughts and feelings that we have, we now have a choice. Do I, I can eat the chocolate or I cannot eat the chocolate, right? And that's really how we can define freedom in, in life and, and in general, is having those options available to us instead of being a slave to our feeling states or our thoughts. Wow, that's and that's so tied right back to the liberation state of the Buddha talked about, right? It's like, it's, it's the, it's the extinguishing of the flame of the desire. And maybe it is just a chocolate chip cookie, right? But it's still desire. Um, and it was in its desire that's ruling us many times. And so, yeah, you really looped that back around perfectly, Greg, about the feeling centered versus the purpose centered shift, right? Yeah. I want to just make one clarification in terms of what you said, because I think that particularly if you look at, for instance, the Theravadan schools of Buddhism, there's very much this focus on eliminating desire, taking that idea directly from the Buddhist teachings. What we're talking about in Japanese psychology isn't eliminating desire in terms of our internal experience. It's eliminating acting on desire in terms of our behavior. And, that, and that's a huge difference, I think. And it makes a huge difference in terms of the way we live our lives. I think it's a huge difference too, and and I guess I'm coming from that uh, everyday Buddhism approach of that would not be so typically Theravadan and 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 sort of suspicious of the of maybe there are people who have you know extinguished the fire and are truly liberated right and there is no desire within them. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a little suspicious, I guess. So, <laughs> so there you go. So, but I do hear what you're saying and that, that your point well taken. Um, the other thing that I found in practicing Marita therapy in Nikon and Kaizen actually was um, that it deeply supported because it probably this was because it happened at the same time that I started getting immersed in um, Japanese schools of Buddhism. I had already studied Zen a little bit, but um, that I was more immersed in Shin Buddhism. Uh, and it was, and I, so there were a lot of com concepts that were new to me, particularly the concepts of Tariki and Jariki, um, which to people who don't know is uh, other power and self-power. Um, I believe uh, Shin Buddhism and the Japanese culture in general um, is sort of poorly misunderstood by those in the West. And I hear people like packaging and rejecting this sort of other power or self-power stuff in as not Buddhist because it's seen as God versus no God. Um, and free will, meaning that there is some another power, meaning that there's no free will when looked at from the Western Christian perspective. But what you just outlined is about that freedom. It is free will, but then there is this other power thing um, that gets in there. And can you talk to that a little bit, or am I kind of pushing too many things together here? <laughs> Well, I think um, uh, I think the terms uh, Jiriki and Tariki are really really wonderful terms, and I think they give us a framework um, for looking at at how to approach life. And Jiriki, as you were saying, is self power. It's the idea that uh, when we practices in um, many forms of Buddhism uh, tend to be Jiriki based. When we meditate, um, we develop the self discipline to kind of sit you know with our legs crossed or under us um, and keep our bodies relatively still and breathe you know for this period of half an hour or 45 minutes an hour at a time 
Um, and so it tends to have a jiriki kind of flavor. Um, tariki is, is more equated to what we might call faith, which is a Christian term. Jin Buddhism tend to translate, um, translate it as something more like true and trusting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's the idea of the uh, kind of um, that we, we trust something, uh, trust some power beyond ourselves. Um, and so when we talk about tariki or other power, um, in a practical way, we look at, you know, what can I actually do that isn't dependent on other people or other forms of life, right? So even just, like, um, could you be, how could you interview me if it wasn't for all the karmic forces in the world that provide this technology, the, the, your own personal karma that led you to kind of um, connect with me virtually in terms of my work, um, the, uh, um, the issues of the, your teachers and the planet and your ancestors and your parents who gave you life. Um, what would you be capable of doing? Um, you know, even the, the knowledge of how to work a computer um, in this case is something that you had to learn from somebody or something else, right? right. So we talk about other power as a, a way of looking at how we're dependent on the world for virtually anything that we do. Right. Uh, going to the bathroom, you know, somebody, somebody potty trained me when I was a kid. I didn't, I didn't do that naturally. Um, <clears throat> and so I think that um, the Shin Buddhist view of this is really this other power view, which is um, much more pushes us in the direction of trust and faith. Um, and I think that that's one of the real values of Pure Land or Shin Buddhism is that it's a kind of a, what I consider a, a soft heartedness um, that, that focuses more on faith, on gratitude, on appreciation, on this kind of connectedness. Um, and it's one of the things that drew me personally to Shin Buddhism was, was those kind of values. Uh, and I think in Japanese psychology, we see Morita therapy as kind of being more reflective of Jiriki or self-power. And we see Nikon, um, which tends to cultivate a sense of gratitude and appreciation and connectedness. And even faith um, at a spiritual level, we see that as more reflective of, of other power or Tariki. Exactly. And that's uh, what happened to me. Uh, just a quick story is that when I first uh, started learning about Shin Buddhism and sort of adopting that as my central practice, which is in, in really no practice in some ways, um, um, it, it was at the same time that I discovered your Nikon practice. And at the time, I was teaching a Buddhist, a basic Buddhism course at the local Tibetan center. Um, and I did a seminar on Nikon. Um, I mean, and I didn't know, I mean, you probably are shivering now <laughs> because I did that. Um, um, but I used your book, dependent on your book, used what we used in our Bright Dawn course. And just a little bit of it wasn't, these, these, these it, it blew these people's minds, really. They kept coming to mm -hmm. me. They had never heard of such a thing. And it was that, that, that sense of deep gratitude, which I think builds that sense of interdependence and that understanding of faith or true and trusting or confidence and in other power, other power being something than your own, you know, willpower, hell or high water sort of thing. So that was a, that was a neat experience for me because I saw that it had the same effect on others that it did me um, because it was something they had 
really no experience with because many people I found have come to Buddhism is a total rejection of any kind of faith, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yet some of these people in the Tibetan center had a lot of faith in the guru, but not in anything else, right? So this was a very interesting thing because there were so many things to think about within that Nikon practice. Um, so that that was Cool. I'm, and I'm glad you did that work. So obviously um, that that was uh, valuable for you, and it sounds like it was valuable for some of the people who were who were there. So I'm not shivering at all. I think it's great. <laughs> yeah, okay, I, I thought maybe you were shuddering. Um, so um, yeah, and if you're comfortable, you talked about your Buddhist background and that you studied at a Zen monastery and that you were drawn to to the Japanese Shin Buddhism. Do you still consider yourself a Buddhist practitioner? I think many of my listeners many of my listeners who are just coming to the dharma a lot of people come to this podcast kind of from nowhere or no understanding of buddhism or more from a secular pro approach i think they're always interested to see how other people practice it and how they came to experience it yeah i do consider myself a buddhist i've taken buddhist vows many years ago and and uh virtually all of my spiritual teachers have been buddhist teachers um i think that because i've been exposed and um, practice in different traditions um, that each of those traditions has kind of left its mark on me in terms of how I look at the world and how I practiced. So even when I was in a sangha back in my days uh, in the Washington DC area um, and we would do Wednesday night meditation and we'd do two rounds of meditation and walking meditation in between. And the first round of meditation, I would, I would sit in Zazen the way that I was trained in Zen. And in the second round of meditation, I would, I would do Nikon reflection during the meditation, um, which is rooted in Shin Buddhist teachings. Um, and I found that that was a wonderful practice for me. So to do Zazen, to do walking meditation, and then to do Nikon reflection was really the way that I would practice in those sessions. Uh, and, um, so I, I don't really label myself as a, in terms of a particular school. I, I find great value in, in many of the Buddhist traditions, but, um, but I clearly, I think, have a Buddhist view of the world and, and, um, and practice in my own way. And I think that part of what Japanese psychology has helped me with is that I really don't see a distinction in the way that I deal with my practical life and my psychological and emotional life, I don't distinguish that between my spiritual views. And I think that it's one of the dilemmas that many people face when they um, are involved in Buddhist practice. And at the same time, they're struggling with relationship issues or money issues or emotional issues or like depression. Um, and they're, they're trying to find support and many buddhist teachers or buddhist centers will they don't want to deal with those issues in a direct way so they'll just tell people to go see a, a mental health practitioner mm -hmm. but in almost any case in in the vast majority of cases they'll see someone with western training and then what they find is that the the guidance they're getting within the mental health sessions is is in some cases different and in many cases even contradictory to the guidance that they're getting in terms of their spiritual practice and that becomes um, a real difficult dissonance for people to deal with um, so i think what what i see as something we offer and something that i've used you know developed in my own life is um, not that i'm always good at doing this but when i'm struggling with um, 
relationship issues and uh, anxiety and depression. I look to the material from Japanese psychology because it's consistent with the Buddhist teachings that I've studied and, and uh, tried to bring into my life. And so I feel that there's a more holistic um, package in terms of, of what I, the way I understand my life, even though it doesn't necessarily prevent me from suffering or messing up. Um, but I don't feel that there's that kind of dissonance. Yeah, exactly. And, and that leads me to sort of a wrap up here about, um, you know, you, I don't know if this was, uh, I emphasize this enough, uh, in this podcast episode, but, um, you know, using the principles uh, that you use in, in Japanese or Eastern psychology of the Maritza therapy, the Nikon therapy, Kaizen, um, they work for all sorts of issues like I had with, you know, procrastination and control, but also, as you mentioned out, you know, relationships, uh, helping relationships, um, anxiety, um, cultivating attention or mindfulness, um, helping with behavioral challenges, you know, that children have or other people have, um, coping with illness, depression, gratitude, you know, even having it as a new way to live with a purpose or a spiritual practice. Um, and you have all these things that you offer. Um, you have, you know, virtual uh, trainings on your website, workshops, webinars, um, you, and not just your books, um, you, and you even have on-site trainings. So can you, um, speaking of that grander purpose, can you share with us some of your upcoming online classes or workshops or any retreats or new books or anything you'd like to, uh, to say something about now? Sure. So I think that, um, the, the next course that we offer online, um, our online courses tend to be very popular, fortunately, and is called The Art of Taking Action. It's based on my book by the same name. And it's a unique course in the sense that we ask people to actually learn this material by picking something in their life, some project that they want to work on. Um, and people pick different things, finishing their PhD dissertation, um, studying for their CPA exam, uh, someone actually finished writing the music for a, a potential Broadway show. Um, other people are trying to organize their um, uh, their last will and testament. So everybody has a project, and, and you learn the material not in some um, uh, you know neutral kind of way, but you learn it by applying it to making progress on that project. Uh, so that's coming up starting March 1st. Um, we actually do a certification program where um, we certify people in this material. We offer that once a year as a residential program in Vermont. And actually last year and this year, we're also doing a program in, in Germany um, in the fall for people in Europe. Um, and uh, we also in addition to the online courses and retreats, I always suggest that people start with a book. It's a pretty minimal investment and uh, you can read one of, of my books and probably get a sense very quickly of whether you resonate with this material. And then if you want to learn more, you know, you have the options of doing courses or retreats or even um, my wife, who's also trained in this work, will do uh, work with people on a one-on-one -on -one basis, long distance, um, so I think there's lots of options for people who kind of want to 
learn the material, but not just learn it intellectually, but learn it in terms of applying it to how they move forward in their life. That's excellent, Greg. Thank you so much for uh, giving the sort of the realm and the, the scope that of, of possibilities that anybody has. And I would highly recommend any of those things. Not that I've taken the residential or pursued the certification, although it's on my to-do list. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but until then, um, I'll, I'll keep... Uh, keeping it in my life as, as an everyday practice. So again, thank you, Greg. I just love that you were able to join me on this podcast. Um, and, and thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Wendy. And it's been a real pleasure to, um, to speak with you. And I, I want to also congratulate you on, on doing this podcast. You obviously have, you really have your heart into it. And I think you're performing a service by connecting different um, teachers and different kinds of work with your audience. And so I wish you the best of luck in, in terms of continuing with this. Thank you. I hope so. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, and it does, does feel like my dharma as you said about yours so so thanks again greg good luck with your um surgery healing and uh, we'll talk again soon thanks wendy so that's it for today's episode thank you for joining me as promised greg is sharing a coupon code with the listeners of this podcast offering a discount on his upcoming taking action class beginning march 1st and going through march 30th You can find it and the link to the class, his websites, and books on my website, www.everyday-buddhism.com. That's www.everyday-buddhism.com. And the code is EverydayBuddhism. All one word strung together, lowercase. So I will be taking the class along with you. I hope you have... Some of you decide to join me on my project is finishing my in-progress book, Making Everyday Better, Everyday Buddhism Tips and Tricks, Applying the Buddha's Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path to Everyday Life. So if you want to join in working with me to finish a project, uh, I think it'd be great. So as always, thanks to everyone who listens to the new podcast to the podcast, comments on my website, or the public Facebook group, or has now joined our book discussion group, uh, uh, talking about a wise heart, and who donates to keep the content written, produced, and distributed. Until next time, keep making your everydays better. <laughs>